Well, good morning, church, and uh, thank you, Andrew, for um, humping up my tyres way beyond where they should have been. <clears throat> Let me share with you this morning. So, Jenny and I had an amazing experience, which I believe was a real-life message from God. It had a profound influence on me and prompted me to write down what had happened. And more than that, to study in more depth and try and understand what I should do with it. Today's my opportunity to share that with you. And uh, it's a great opportunity that, that, uh, that I have and I hope it inspires you as it did me. In February this year, Jenny and I, together with our son Chris and his wife Chelsea, went to Germany for a trade show. Um, it's called Euroshop and if you're in the shop fitting industry, it's a place you need to be when that show is on. Anyway, we spent a few days there and then afterwards, Jenny and I spent a couple of weeks just touring around uh, Holland and visiting different people and um, catching up with a few relatives. At one point, we stayed in a little village called Delden. Most of the time, the weather wasn't very good, but it was the middle of February, so what do you expect? You know, if you're going to be in Holland in the middle of winter, uh, what are you going to get? <clears throat> Anyway, it was Sunday morning and it was quite miserable outside in Delden. And um, I thought to myself, uh, I'll just get on the internet and see if I can find a church that we can attend this morning. Um, and I found this little church called Grace Church. It sounded a little bit edgy, so I thought, yeah, let's go to this church and see what, uh, what that brings. So we drove down there and it was actually not a church. It was kind of like a local hall, maybe a government building. I'm not sure exactly. A bit like One Hope, I suppose. And so, anyway, we ventured in and a lady greeted us at the door and she led us to a back room uh, where they were feeding some young kids and, and looking after some babies. Um, they asked us whether we'd been invited and we said, by the pastor and we said no we just we just showed up anyway we ended up sitting in the back room there and um, if I think about a word that comes to mind it's probably awkward um, and um, Jenny was giving me that kind of look that said what have you done why have you brought us here um, and I had no idea either but we waited patiently in the back room Eventually, um, uh, one of the elders came up and spoke to us and he didn't actually believe that we'd come from Australia until somebody had told him that. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, we, he introduced us and, and um, welcomed us. And by this time, the prayer time had finished upstairs and, the, and uh, we met the pastor and, and we kind of proceeded to go uh, into the church. Now, Jenny and I, really planned that this was going to be one of those places where you just go in inconspicuously, uh, unnoticed, sit in the back, enjoy the worship, enjoy the service, and then sneak out after the service was over. Well, there was no way that was going to happen this morning. After some worship time, the pastor called both Jenny and I to the front of the church, together with a, an interpreter. He didn't know that we could understand Dutch. Um, and he said he had a, a, 
a prophecy to proclaim over us. Well, we were right in the limelight, right in the centre, no way of escaping and being inconspicuous that morning. The pastor then told us that the scripture surrounding the prophecy that he had for us came from 2 Kings chapter 7. So we're going to read that this morning and uh, I'm just going to invite Lauren to lead us in that um, reading for us today. Good morning church. This morning's Bible reading is from 2 Kings chapter 7. Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. And if they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of the chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside thinking they will surely come out and then we will take them alive and get into the city. One of his officers answered, Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all the Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, Go and find out what has happened. Then they followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So the seer of the finest flour sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he had leaned in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway and he died just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. 
It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow a seer of the finest flower will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway and he died. This is the reading. Thanks, Lauren, for um, sharing that reading with us. I thought to myself, what prophecy for Jenny and I could come from this chapter? Of the main characters, which one would apply to us? So let's have a look at the main characters. Firstly, there was the prophet Elisha. He was the voice of God. Then there was the king. This was King Jehoram, and he was the son of King Ahab. He was an unfaithful king, but he was only half as bad as his father. You know how it's fashionable at the moment to name children after biblical uh, characters, um, my grandchildren being two perfect examples? Well, I can tell you that Ahab and his wife Jezebel are not on that list. These two were seriously bad people. The next character in the um, story was the trusted captain, who the king leaned on for advice and good counsel. He was the right-hand man, the one who had the ear of the king. And finally, there were the four lepers. Some scholars suggest that this could have been Jehazi, Elisha's former servant, and his three sons. Actually, in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, you can read the story of um, uh, Elisha and Naaman and Jehazi's involvement there. So what happened was uh, Elisha was called by God to heal Naaman. And Naaman was a commander in the Syrian army. And so uh, he came and um, reluctantly, in a sense, he was healed by uh, God through Elisha. Anyway, when he was healed from his leprosy, uh, he was so thankful he wanted to give gifts to uh, Elisha. And Elisha said, no, this is the work, work of God. It's not my work. And so uh, we'll give God the credit. I don't need anything. So Naaman and his troops uh, went off into the, into the sunset. But Jehazi was quite uh, astute and thought to himself, hmm, I can... I can make some, uh, some ground out of this. So he went back and chased after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him, he said, uh, is everything all right? What's up? And he said, oh, look, Elisha had a bit of a change of heart. Uh, he thought to himself, oh, I've got a couple of prophets coming. I could do with a bit of money and, a bit of, and some new clothes. So Naaman gave Jehazi two bags of silver and uh, some sets of clothes that he could take back with him. So that's what he did. Then Jehazi went back to uh, Elisha, um, and Elisha said, where have you been? Now, I really don't get this because Jehazi had experienced Elisha for a long time. He knew that he was God's prophet. He knew that God spoke through Elisha, and he knew that God... Um, whispered stuff in Elisha's ear that nobody else knew. So how he thought he was going to 
uh, get away with what he'd done uh, is actually beyond me. But anyway, so that's what he says. Um, and then, of course, he says, I didn't, you know, I've been nowhere, I've done nothing. And Elisha says to him, I know where you've been, I know what you've done. Firstly, you've taken a reward for God's work, and uh, that's not right. And secondly, um, you've lied to me. So guess what, mate? The leprosy that Naaman had is now going on to you. Interesting how uh, God uses this disease, firstly in a good way to heal Naaman, and then secondly as a punishment to Jehazi. Anyway, that's how Jehazi the leper ends up in our story today. Um, let's look at the characters again. Elisha, he was the, God's prophet and he was a real thorn in the side of the Syrian army. Every time they planned uh, an attack, somehow Elisha, through God, had become aware of it, warned the king and uh, circumvented uh, disaster for, for the Israeli people. This time, however, the Lord had allowed the city of Samaria to be under siege so nothing could go out or come in. This had been the situation for three years, so you can imagine how desperate things had become. We're struggling with six weeks of COVID lockdown in Melbourne. Can you imagine what three years of lockdown, no one in, no one out, no food uh, for three years in this city. Slightly different uh, sense of uh, um, uh, disaster, isn't it? In fact, it got so bad, if you go back to chapter six in uh, Two Kings, it tells a story of two women who decided to kill their sons and eat them because they were so hungry. And so the one day they killed the first woman's son and they ate him. And then the second day, uh, the other woman reneged and uh, she hid her son. Anyway, this horrendous story ends up getting back to the king who says to himself, <coughs> this is Elisha's fault. And he sends his his troops out to go get Elisha to bring him back because he said, I'm going to take this guy's head off. Anyway, Elisha gets a word from God that the next morning everything would return to normal and the prices of goods and, and everything and there'd be abundance of food and everything would go back to normal by the next day. Well, then there's the king. Elisha had been constantly reminding him of these wicked ways and Jehoram knew that he wasn't in God's favour. Yet he'd seen God, through Elisha's prophecy, save him and his people on numerous occasions. So when Elisha spoke, the king listened because Elisha had a pretty impressive record. Yet as the story goes, he also listens to his own captain who he leaned on for advice. So then there's the captain, who clearly does not believe Elisha, and to be truthful, if it was us from a human perspective, we probably wouldn't believe it either, that somehow miraculously, after three years of um, famine and siege, that the next day everything's going to go back to normal. 
and then to the Zalepidus, rejected by the people within the city and with nothing much to lose. Either way, they were going to die, so they decide to venture out to be in the Syrian camp and beg for mercy. So what can we learn from each of the players in the story? And what was the message that the preacher wanted to give to Jenny and I? I've heard of people speak on how they've received visions or received a direct word from God. I'm not really one of those people, but I've always thought that an experience like that would be pretty cool. Generally, I've experienced something in my life which I couldn't make any sense of. It's only when I look up back over the passage of time that I realise what God was doing. So how do you know if a word of prophecy is a message from God or just someone's opinion? As Andrew mentioned earlier, um, the first lesson is discerning the validity of the prophecy is testing it against scripture. Is what someone telling me consistent with the way I should live as a servant of God? What's the credibility of the messenger? Is this a person who is shown by their life that they are a reliable source and someone who lives close to God? In this story, it's quite clear that the source is reliable. The king has already seen God's prophet Elisha save Israel on many occasions from the Syrian army. He's clearly the voice of God. However, at the same time, he listens to the captain who mocks Elisha and challenges the unlikely outcome that Elisha predicts. How often do we do that? We even pray that God would do something extraordinary. And when our prayer is over, what do we do? We continue to worry and not trust that God will answer that prayer. But when God does answer in an extraordinary way, um, we seem surprised. Or even worse than that, we forget to thank him. Does he always answer prayer the way we expect? No, clearly he doesn't. Um, But he always does what's best for us in the long run. And uh, we've got to remember, he says in his word that his ways are higher than our ways. And um, when his ways are higher than our ways, we can't always predict what the outcome's going to be. Because of his unbelief, Elisha makes the captain pay the ultimate price. And at the same time reminds the king of the mighty authority of God. One thing that displeases God intensely is unbelief in his power and authority. Unbelief is the exact opposite of faith. It is something that God has hated to the core because it defies his majesty and in no way fits who he really is as God of the impossible. Remember what happened to Zechariah and Moses because of their unbelief. Zechariah can't speak until his son is born. And Moses tramps around in the desert for 40 years and then God excludes him from the promised land. You see how God hates unbelief. So as the gates open and the people rush out of the city, the captain is trampled underfoot and is killed. And so Elisha's prophecy comes true. The four lepers in the meantime had a great time ransacking the Syrian camp and stowing away loot for themselves. What does that remind you of our recent history? People going all out for themselves, stripping the supermarket of toilet paper? Hmm. A message that's maybe a little closer to home than we like to think. 
Finally, the lepers come to their senses and realise that their fortunate discovery is not for them alone. There are thousands of people starving and dying who do not know that they've been liberated. So they go back into the city, they tell the king this incredible story. And then there's King Jehoram, a man who had seen the power of God at work through his prophet Elisha and yet generally followed in the wicked ways of his father Ahab. Even in this story, God has a word for Jehoram, and it's a good word, saving him yet again. However, if you follow his life story, you'll find that history shows him being killed during a coup by Ehud, who overtook the throne of Israel. When he was killed, his body was thrown into Naboth's field as punishment for his father Ahab, stealing the land illegally years before. How often do we need to see God at work in our lives before we put our total trust in him? Whatever happens in our lives, God is always there. He will not abandon us, but will rescue us time and time again. There is a warning, however, that if we refuse to believe and our lives do not reflect a relationship with Jesus, there can be no good eternal outcome. We love to hear the good news of an eternal life in heaven with Jesus, but often shy away from the fact that there are only two sides. We can't sit on the fence. One side you confess Christ, on the other side you deny him. Remember also that Satan owns the fence. It's his most treasured piece of real estate. So what did the preacher have to say to Jenny and I? This is what he said. God has given you much and will bless you financially. This is a great responsibility. To whom much is given, much will be required. As did the lepers, remember that God has not blessed you merely for yourselves, but it's your responsibility to share this with others in the building of his church. What he said just resonated so clearly with my own heart and my vision as it applies directly to our business. We keep reminding ourselves that our business has been gifted to us by God and that we are to be good stewards of this gift. More than that, our role as leaders in the company is to see this as our calling, as a ministry, not just a job or a career. The pastor's word to us struck so close to home, but he had no knowledge of anything about us. He didn't know our background, he didn't know our circumstances, and yet somehow he could so accurately understand God's calling on our lives. Jenny and I were blown away with the message he gave us, but later it prompted me to ask myself if I was truly living up to this calling. And I asked myself these questions. How much time have I spent hearing God, whether through prophecy, studying his word, or spending time in prayer? How often have I doubted what God can do? When has unbelief penetrated my thinking? How have I worried when I should have just trusted? How often have I put my personal needs in front of God's calling on my life? How much has my life been affected by fence sitting? How many times have I had the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel? And neglected to do so. Does any of this resonate with you? I'm sure it does. 
Fortunately, God's an amazing and gracious and loving God. So much so that he gave his son to cover our sins. All we have to do is believe. When I doubt even the truth of this, I turn myself to my favourite passage in Romans 8, where we read in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then in verse 37, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know if I'll ever have another experience like this, but I know that God was speaking to us on that wet Sunday morning in Delta. I pray that some of what I've shared with you today inspires you to seek God more and discover the particular calling he has in your life. Amen. Thanks, Pete. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, it's, it's not easy being vulnerable sometimes and sharing, but we just really appreciate, I appreciate that, Pete, and I know that we appreciate that. You know, Pete shared how God, through a pastor in Holland, used this story in a word to remind him of a specific call that he'd given himself and Jenny. Not because they were disobedient, but perhaps as a reminder or maybe a refocus. Maybe God saw areas of readjustment. Goodness knows, but God knows, and so does Pete. The great thing is that God was very personal, and, and that's what I, I got out of Pete's story. God was very personal in such a way that Pete and Jenny knew that he was speaking to them. And that's a, that's, a, that's a great thing because God is so personal with us. What about you? You know, as you were listening today, what has God said to you? A reminder? Maybe a time to refocus or maybe a readjustment in some of the things that are going on in your life? Has it caused you to think about your journey and your relationship with God? Did you notice those points that Pete shared and, you know, the questions that he shared? I think they're just great questions for not just Pete and Jenny, but... For us too. Um, you know, how much time have you spent, have I spent hearing God, studying his word or praying? Really good question. Now, how often have I doubted or have you doubted what God can do, what he said in his word? How, when has unbelief penetrated in your thinking where you thought, oh, this is never going to change, that God is not going to be able to do this? And you worried when you should have trusted. How, how often have you put your personal list, well, I'm guilty of that. How often have you put your personal needs in front of God's calling on your life? It's really subtle and it's really easy to do that. But when you think about it, how, how have we done that? How much has my life been affected by fence sitting? And did you hear that line? I love that line where Pete says, remember that Satan owns the fence. I'd never thought of that. You know, I'd always considered fence sitting one of those things. I'm not really committal. I'm not really in sin here. I'm not... But that's Satan's area. If you're not for God, you're against him. Satan owns the fence. What a great lesson this morning. Thanks, Pete. How many times have you and I had the opportunity to share the good news and neglected to do that? Oh, I could tell you plenty of times, and I'm sure that you know those as well. 
Ask yourself those questions and, and pray and ask God to show you. Can you identify with anyone in the story? You know, the story out of 2 Kings, are you like, or are we like King Joram? We've seen God work, we know what he does, and yet we seek counsel in other places. We look for relief in other places too, and we want to foot in both camps, don't we? If you're anything like me, you know what that's like as well. We still choose to live lives in ways that don't honour God or, or have the things that we know that yeah, maybe aren't right. We don't trust God and we worry. Or are you like the captain? He also saw God at work, but he derided it. He rejected it. He mocked it. He ignored it to his peril, we see. Can we be like that sometimes? Or maybe can we be like the lepers? We have a huge stash of something good. And you know, we do. We have the good news of great joy. We've been talking about that for weeks. We have this huge stash of something good. Do we share it? Are we sharing it? And we also have material wealth, as, as Pete explained with, with um, his and Jenny's school. We have material wealth too. And it's from God. Are we sharing that? That's convicting for me as well. Has God spoken to you today? Remember I said at the start, he's a speaking God. And I believe that he spoke to us through Pete today. But God communicates with us because he loves us. Not because he's looking for ways to make our life more miserable or looking for ways to... to, to whack us back into line, but because he loves us. It's not to expose us or to condemn us. His direction or correction, his reminding and realigning, all those prompts are expressions of his love for us. He knows how he made us. He knows why he made us. And he knows for what he made us. And he knows that our lives work best when we get in line with that. And love drives him to speak to us like that. He is more committed to us than we can ever fathom. We know this because he sent his son Jesus to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery, from captivity to sin, so that we can commune with him, we can hear him now. The great work of Jesus on the cross was to redeem us, to re-establish that connection with God, so that people like Pete, people like me, people like you, can now communicate and hear from God, understand the way that he speaks to us and to respond to him and live for him. Do you know this God? Do you know the one who loves you? Do you know the one who saved you? If you don't, as I say every week, we'd love to help you. We'd love to help you to know him. We'd love to answer questions. We'd love to pray with you. And if you do know him, I hope that the word that Pete brought us from God this morning really challenged you to look at your life and think of the things. Are you hearing God? Are we, are we listening to God? Are we in line with what he has for us? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your servants. We thank you especially for Pete this morning. And we just recognise and accept your word from uh, through him this morning. And Lord, we pray that, um, Lord, that you will enable us to take that word to our hearts, to hear you through it, and to act accordingly. Not so that we can be good, not so that we can be successful, not so that we can pin a badge on our chest, but so that you would be glorified, that the world would see that there is a great and loving God, and that they would kneel before him, before you, and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.